How did you find out about the shooting? I got a text when I was in my classroom teaching. The text was from her daughter, Lauren. Active shooter, I love you, Mom. Rebecca Hogg turned to a student in her classroom. I've got to go. I have a family emergency. And I grabbed my purse and ran to my principal's office. The principal told her that a shooting had happened, but she couldn't leave the school. The roads were blocked by police because the hospital that was receiving victims was close by. Rebecca called her husband, who worked for the FBI. I called Kevin, who was at Taco Bell, and I said, there's been a shooting. I said, you need to go home and get your raid vest, like his bulletproof vest that says FBI, and your gun, and go get our kids. And he did. He couldn't find Lauren, but he got David. Stuck at work, Rebecca, her principal, and a few colleagues crowded around a TV to follow what was happening. A co-worker with kids at the school was watching a feed from inside the school, broadcast on Facebook Live. So I'm sitting there watching it in real time. We were watching as Scott Beagle was killed, like they were filming. And they said, oh my God, our teacher just fell on the floor. He's been shot. No one knew what to do. And I was in shock. And my principal said, here, eat something. And I ate about a pound and a half of cheese. He had like a bunch of cheese cut up with crackers. And I just kept eating it and eating it. Finally, by about five or so, they were able to leave the school. But with all the press, it took forever to drive home. But by seven o'clock, the family were thankfully together at home. But they weren't together for long. Their eldest son, David Hogg, didn't want to sit. He wanted to act. I mean, he was just so outraged when it first happened. And then David said, I want to go back to the school. I'm going to talk to the press. Rebecca had a sense that this would change their lives. It worried her greatly. We said, absolutely not. You cannot drive back. He grabbed his bike and he goes, I'm going. And he had his camera on his shoulder because, remember, he was in TV production. So he was like, I'm going to get the story. And he jumped on his bike and rode back to school. And he was there until 2 a.m. Rebecca remembers that moment still today. It's almost like David went to school that day and the person who came home that night after the shooting was a different person. That night, the 14th of February, 2018, their son took on a different role. We were watching him on the news You know, we would turn on CNN, and he was there. In the days that followed, David Hogg and a growing number of students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, based in Parklands, began something new. As survivors of school gun violence, they chose to immediately stand up and call for political action on gun violence in America. Their age, their articulate turn of phrase, their skillful organising their background and the horror of what they had experienced came together to build one of the more significant social movements in modern American history. Its name? March for Our Lives. Today I'm in Parklands, Florida. The next few episodes of Changemakers is a little different from those that have come before. We're bringing you several episodes, each of which covers different aspects of the social movements that dramatically grew in response to the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School 
on the 14th of February 2018. Social movements are always hard and complex, but this one couldn't have been built in more difficult circumstances. But in this movement, like every movement, there are universal lessons about the possibilities and challenges for how we make change. Each of the next few episodes focuses on a different question around social movement success. This episode, our first in this series, is about the role of voice. We consider that a critical driver in movement success is the question of who speaks. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We produce content about social change with the aim of helping all of us better understand what works and what doesn't. Our Changemaker story episodes, like this one, are stories of change. We also produce Changemaker chats, which interview individuals that make change. We want to thank Cheryl McDonough and the team from the film Parklands Rising for helping us to produce this podcast series. Parklands Rising is a remarkable documentary about these events. We encourage you all to go see it. Find out more at www.parklanddocumentary.com. Changemakers podcast is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. The thing about a school shooting is that it can happen anywhere to any child. Actually, that's not true. It happens far more frequently in America. Only in the US can people so easily and legally obtain the military-style weapons needed for a mass shooting. Since the Columbine school shooting in 1999, mass school shootings have become a thing in America. Sociologist David Phillips describes them as a contagion where media interests combine with copycat competitive behaviour to raise the profile and frequency of this form of mass shooting above all others. In 2019 alone, there were 549 incidents of gunfire at schools, leading to over 400 deaths. There were 13 mass school shootings, just in 2019. Of course, the problem of gun death is bigger than the problem of mass school shootings. According to the Giffords Law Centre, 36,000 Americans every year are killed by guns. But not everyone is threatened equally. Black Americans are 10 times more likely than white Americans to be murdered with a gun. Of all the women murdered by a gun, half are killed as an act of domestic violence. More than half the gun deaths are suicides. But while most middle-class white Americans think that guns are not an issue for them, school shootings don't discriminate. They happen to rich kids as well as poor kids, white kids as well as black kids. The randomness of the school shooting and the fear that it could happen to your child creates a connection between gun violence 
and the mainstream American middle class. But it's not just the existence of guns that is the problem. It's the organised support that guns have amongst the voting public. Jeff Foster is a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, or MSD for short, and for years he has run a regular class for his students that sounds something like this. This is called the NRA. You've probably heard of them, the National Rifle Association. And I go, we had a bunch of elementary schools, kids murdered in this country a few years ago, and every politician from Barack Obama to John Boehner to, to and I name all the leadership in the, in the government, went on television and said how we're going to change gun laws, and the NRA just sat back and just watched it all happen, and then no laws were ever introduced in this country. You know why? Because the second that they thought about introducing those laws, the NRA went into full tilt mode and said, if you're going to do that, we're going to defeat you in primaries, and we're going to beat you here, and we're going to beat you there, and we're going to put money and resources into, and they're like, whoops, sorry, we don't really care about it. So following Columbine, mass school shootings kept happening. Before Parklands, there was Sandy Hook Elementary School. 26 people were shot, including 20 children between the ages of six and seven. At the time, people remarked, if people don't act on guns now, they never will. People tried including a large group of mums whose story we told in episode three of Changemakers. But in the end, there were thoughts and prayers, but no legislative change. Parklands, Florida is the kind of place that looked safe. I mean, it didn't have everything going for it. As Emma Gonzalez says, it had some pretty lax gun laws. In Florida, to buy a gun, you do not need a permit, you do not need a gun license, and once you buy it, you do not need to register it. You do not need a permit to carry a concealed rifle or shotgun. You can buy as many guns as you want at one time. But of all the places in Florida, the suburb of Parklands feels safer than most. Half an hour north of Miami, closer to the Everglades than to the beach, Parklands has plenty of features that would set most middle-class parents' minds at ease. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School student Jamal Lemmy explains. For multiple, multiple years, Parkland was one of the safest cities in the country. And uh, a lot of people moved from up north to, you know, places like Parkland, you know, in like the early 2090s because um, of how safe it was. Parklands felt safe because it was a gated community. Every street block was lined with a tall wall or hedge. Halfway up the block, you could glimpse the back of houses, but you could only approach homes via a 24-hour security checkpoint. It was an upper-middle-class suburban community where 80% of families were white. Parklands was a place where people went to secure themselves away from the dangers of modern life. But gates and security guards can only provide so much. Like, you know... It can happen to anyone and it can, you know, happen anywhere. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what space you create, you know, and how safe of the space you create is, and, you know, and sometimes it's just not in your hands. On the 14th of February 2018, at 2.21pm, shortly before the end of the day's classes, a former MSD high school student, armed with an AR-15, a semi-automatic military-style weapon, entered the high school and began shooting. (laughs) 
In just over six minutes, he killed 17 people and injured another 17. It was the fourth largest school shooting in US history. But the power of this movement did not come from the scale of the brutality. It came from the actions of those who survived it. David Hogg talked to the media the night of the shooting, but he wasn't alone in wanting to do something. Jeff Foster taught government at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The original crew was, was Cameron and David and Emma and Delaney Tarr and Ryan Deitch and Sophie Whitney. There might have been one or two more. I mean, it's obviously grown exponentially since, so it's hard to remember the exact first day. But they basically just sat in Cameron's house on the floor. For the first time ever, survivors of a school shooting decided to change their role in this tragedy. In the traditional script, the students were meant to be passive victims, allowing the media to focus on the accused. But not this time. In Parklands, these older students were survivors and they could speak for themselves. And they weren't just survivors, as Rebecca Hogg describes. They so quickly organised. I mean, that night, Cameron Kasky started organising. So who was Cameron organising? So there were three main groups of people who kind of formed together afterwards at Cameron Kasky's house. And one of them was the, the TV production kids, which David was in. But some of the other ones were also the debate kids, which David was also in. And then the other ones were the drama kids. So the really interesting thing to me from sort of a sociological standpoint is that all these kids in high school, all those groups historically are outcasts. You know, they don't, they're not the cool kids. They don't fit in. They don't belong. You know what I mean? They're not, which is great. They didn't have anything to lose. This wasn't any old group of school debaters. Their identity was also a factor. I think it was the perfect storm because it was entitled white kids, right? So people listened. They were extremely well-spoken all of them. They were in drama and debate and TV production. So they, you know, had been trained how to think and how to speak and how to argue. Unsurprisingly, these privileged students were at a great school with remarkable teachers. Emma Gonzalez said she drew inspiration from her teacher, Jeff Foster, a detail she announced on CNN just after the shooting. First of all, I want to thank Mr. Foster for teaching us everything we learned. I could not have written that speech without you. I've known them all, you know, almost, almost all of them, you know, fairly well before those events. Because in my class, we have a lot of Socratic discussion. Really, the kids that ended up, you know, ascending to these heights of being the leaders of this movement were the kids that were very vocal in class before that, you know, there, it wasn't like a wallflower became Emma Gonzalez. It wasn't like David Hogg never spoke in class. It wasn't like Delaney Tarr, like her, her voice was found when this happened. Now, these kids were all, you know, active, I guess, at a, at, a, at a local level, at a school level. Privileged, skilled communicators. But I had another question. Where did their fight come from? It's one thing to be a school debater, 
even at a privileged school, it's another thing entirely to take on power, to prosecute an unrelenting campaign that takes on the NRA and to have the guts not to give up. And they've, they've had different things in their lives. But again, they're all, none of them are the most popular kid in the school. When it comes to David, his mum says it was a long time coming. He was always my child I was the most concerned about because I knew from a very early age that he most likely was dyslexic as I am because I'm a teacher, so I know the signs to look for. And he never crawled. Nothing came easy to him in elementary school. So he had to work extremely hard to meet the same goals that the other kids made. David was different. His different learning style and his battle to thrive while different perhaps gave him the stomach for something more. But there was something else too. David had been taught to fight by his mum. I am a person who will get out and protest for what I believe in. So when they were really small, I would take them to protests for my pay. So when he was, when they were both really little, we went out and they carried signs and we walked and picketed. So, but I also would volunteer for politicians that I believed in. I would go and make phone calls. And he just knew things like that were important to me. I had fundraise, I've had fundraisers at my house. How important do you reckon all that experience was when he was thrust into a crisis? Extremely important. Because I think he realised if you speak up, you can make a difference. Through a wily mixture of privilege and passion, skills and guts, a group of student leaders emerged. I mean, it's almost like they're right out of central casting. This tall, skinny, gangly, you know, kid with this with this good haircut, and then Emma's got the shaved head, and Delaney's this librarian blonde girl who's just so brilliant. And I mean, all of them. I can go through ten other kids I haven't mentioned yet. On the 15th of February at the school, the community held a candlelight vigil. But already by that point, a variety of students had decided that they wanted to do something. Earlier that day, Jaslyn Corrin, junior class president, had begun posting on Instagram, calling on people to move for stricter gun control. Cameron Kasky was playing around with an improvised slogan that he wanted to test with others. Hashtag never again. That night, Cameron invited a group of theatre students and debaters around his place, including David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez. They lay on the rugs and couches that sprawled across his parents' living room. Computers open, phones out. Everyone was busy. Some did media interviews. Others wrote material for their new website or for social media posts. Chat groups were formed so decisions could be made quickly. They might have looked like novices, but they were digital natives. It helped them produce savvy social media content right off the bat. Of course, their digital voices carried because of who was speaking, but they also had a knack for guessing the tricks of the social media trade that NGOs typically pay thousands of dollars for. For instance, Jeff Foster was part of their initial amplifying campaign on the Friday morning, less than two days after the shooting. And I remember them reaching out to me and just saying, you know, we, we, we really could use your help with this. And I remember them sending me uh, uh, something through Twitter and just saying, can, at this time, we're going to tweet out never again. Can you do that and spread that? 
how powerful and important do you reckon social media was to the success of the students? I think it was the absolutely key element. Absolutely. Tell me why. Because it, you can get your message out immediately throughout the world. And you don't have to wait for a member of the press to come. Like immediately, if David tweets something, there's like a million people who see it. Jeff agrees. The difference between Columbine, the difference between, I mean, Sandy Hook, obviously they're babies, um, is that now we have this ability to, to organize people so much easier with, with Twitter and with Facebook and with Instagram and, and the 24-hour news cycle. You know, the 24-hour news cycle was just sort of beginning briefly in Columbine, you know. I mean, I was convinced, because I was teaching government when Sandy Hook happened, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that laws were going to change weeks, months after Sandy Hook, and I was incredulous that nothing happened. Using social media, they became well-known quickly. Over the next three days, Never Again gained over 35,000 followers on Facebook. Emma Gonzalez joined Twitter and within 10 days had one million followers. But social media has its challenges too. Rebecca Hogg recalls a moment that her daughter Lauren went through. Lauren came in one morning and it was early because we were on California time. So it was like... 5 or 6 a.m., and she says, Mom, I think I really messed up. And I was like, what'd you do? And she goes, I tweeted something, and now Donald Trump Jr. is attacking me. And I was like, well, what did you tweet? And she said, because, you know, our first lady's thing is anti bullying on social media. And Donald Trump Jr. had said something or retweeted something that someone had said that was awful about David. And so Lauren tweeted, hey, Melania, hey, First Lady, why don't you talk to your stepson about being a bully? Because he just bullied my family. And her social media blew up. And I said, oh, I don't think you did anything wrong, Lauren. I think as, as a family and as people, if you poke the bear, we will come out. We will come. We will stand up for ourselves. We aren't people who just lay down and take it. Using the resources and the support they had, the students worked out things as they went along. On the Saturday, three days after the shooting, a rally was held at Broward County Federal Courthouse. Several students spoke at the event. One was Emma Gonzalez. Right at the beginning, in a moment that most of the TV coverage missed, she explained how she assembled her thoughts. I know this looks like a lot, but these are my AP Gov notes. She had written her speech on the back of her AP government notes, a class she took with Jeff Foster. For many years, Mr. Foster, as the students called him, taught hundreds of students about special interest groups with an emphasis on the NRA. Indeed, he was teaching a class that featured the NRA when the shooting occurred on the 14th of February. Emma used that knowledge to assemble her own speech that day. The 
people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us. And us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays, saying that all we are is self-involved and trend-obsessed, and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. Politicians! Politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS! do not decrease gun violence. We call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS. No, they say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS. Kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. The We Call BS speech went viral. It is regarded as one of the most powerful speeches ever delivered on gun violence, or indeed on any topic in modern American politics. But what is less known is that Emma's chance to speak came up by chance, as Mr. Foster explains. Emma told me after the fact that, like, it was sort of a, you know, just a random, like, hey, you want to come and speak? And she's like, sure, I'll speak. You know, it was, it was really, so they sort of, sort of were just kind of asking around, like, hey, you know, you seem like you're articulate. you got any friends that sound like you, you know? So, and, and because she was the kind of person who would put her hand up. Correct, yes. She became a leader. Yes, yes. So, so again, it was, it was, it was, I know David gave a speech. I know Emma gave a speech. I know Ryan gave a speech. Um, and, and Delaney gave a speech at the end, there were a couple others, but those were the four big ones that sort of, you know, mushroomed into the the crew. Emma and the others stepped forward because they were organised. The moment itself created a sense of duty, but that call was answered by a particular group of students. Those leading the way were the students who had joined the group at Cameron's house. Between those students, there was trust. People were helping each other. Students had each other's back. It was from that group, rather than the broader student population, from which students became national leaders. By the Sunday, the movement, all of five days old, had pivoted. It had achieved global attention and was now moving to make a political intervention. Long-term, well, long-term relative to the work done so far, that is, long-term in just under six weeks, the plan was to hold a march on Washington. They had a name. March for Our Lives, and some key demands around tighter background checks, limits and delays on gun sales, raising the age for gun ownership, all of which spoke to the specific circumstances of the Parkland shooting. There was a plea to take a little time here. There was a need for families to grieve, for funerals to occur. At the same time, for those who wanted to do more, students and some parents who had lost children, zeroed in on political decision makers. Their first target was the Florida State House in Tallahassee, less than a week after Emma's speech. Their plan was clear. Um, we're going to plan on going to Tallahassee. With the, the session's about to end. That's our federal, that's our state government. Um, and we want to try to get them to pass a law in these next couple of days and we're going to bring numbers up there and we need some adults. And everybody said, you're the one who should go with us. 
While the students and adults were clear that this political movement was a student campaign, students became clear that they would need some help. And who could be more helpful on a political lobbying trip than their government teacher, Mr Foster? I said, I, I need to be on this trip. I mean, I'm, this is, you know, this is what I teach. This is what I know. I need to escort these, these kids up to Tallahassee to see if we can't, you know, make immediate change in our state government. It was a road trip with a political twist. Driving my, my wife's mini, our minivan. I always say my wife's minivan. It's our minivan, but I, she drives all the time, so I call it her, her minivan. And I took seven kids up in my car. And we, and on the way up, it was incredible. Like, they had their computers and their, their Wi-Fi was working. They had their, their earpieces in. They were doing interviews around the world. They were talking to legislators. They were, in between, we were singing songs from Hamilton and Ed Sheeran. But, I mean, I mean, they were literally, it was, it was like a little moving office on the way up. In all, over 100 students had made the trip. Jesslyn Corrin had done much of the planning. There was a demonstration and a bunch of lobby meetings planned. In this moment, Jeff knew that he needed to mark out the space between him as an adult supporter and the students. The students had already begun to differentiate their voice from the voice of adults and politicians. David Hogg said this to CNN the day after the shooting. We're children. You guys, like, are the adults. You need to take some action and play a role. Work together, come over your politics and get something done. Jeff could see that the authority of the students' voices came from their ability to distinguish themselves from the adults who had failed them. I didn't even go in the building with them. I stayed, I I escorted them inside. They went inside, they had all the meetings and I just stayed outside. I went to lunch with my friend and I came back to meet them when they were done because, you know, it was about them. It wasn't about any of us adults. The Tallahassee intervention was a brutal schooling in real politique. The students had hoped to pressure the state to pass a motion to ban assault weapons in the wake of the shooting. But it was harder than they planned, as they told CBS at the time. We've we've been to five rooms so far, and they've just moved us room to room. We have so much to say, and what we need to do is talk about it to lawmakers, and they're not even showing up to our meetings. (laughs) We knew this was going to be hard, but we weren't expecting this. But, like, hopefully, hopefully we'll get to actually meet with someone. Maybe. It feels a lot like we're being dismissed because we are teenagers. David Hogg reflected on the experience. We met with some of the legislators in Tallahassee and we felt like we didn't really get far enough because they wouldn't even discuss assault weapons there. This was their first lobbying experience. At one level, this was an extraordinary achievement. They got over 100 students to the Capitol six days after a school shooting. Yet it was also a lesson about power. A new movement, however passionate, would not rival the influence of the NRA unless it could show that it had staying power and it could demonstrate it could shift votes. A new strategy was needed. March for Our Lives resolved to get bigger. Their focus turned towards organising the March for Our Lives demonstration on the 24th of March. There were protests, including a die-in at the White House and then, on the 14th of March, a month after the shooting, there was a national school walkout. At 10am, students and parents walked out of school for 17 minutes in recognition of the 17 people who had died. The action reflected the spread of the movement. 3,000 schools and 1 million students participated. Parkland students called for people to boycott any company that had ties to the NRA. But in Parkland, the focus was on the 24th of March. 
Marching on Washington is an iconic act in the American social movement repertoire, made most famous by Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963. Calling this march was a bold move. Up until then, most gun violence rallies had only hundreds of people attending. But as ambitious as ever, the students had given themselves just over five weeks to make it happen. Organising a march is a big deal under normal conditions. Logistics, speakers, media, turnout. But this was nothing short of extraordinary. No one had ever done anything like this before. As Jeff Foster remembers, he and a couple of students found themselves in a chat about this. We're talking to, to, um, to um, Kate and Steven, Steven Spielberg and his wife. Um, and... Um, and she, she asked us, you know, to the kids, have you guys ever done anything like this before, like the march? And, and the kid was like, yeah, I, I organized a, a chorus trip once. And they just started laughing. But literally, that's what we're talking about. Like, they had never done anything. And they're like, well, this is a little bigger than the chorus trip. And we're like, yeah, we, we think so. But it wasn't the end of the world. Chorus trips could be scaled up with enormous amounts of money. When you had Clooney and Oprah and all these people say, hey, we'll give you $500,000. I mean, it was happening quicker than we could. You know, like literally we were driving up. We're like, oh, Oprah just gave us $500,000. Oh, yeah, right. You know, it's like, thanks, Oprah. You know, it's like, but, but I mean, when you see that sort of stuff happening, you realize that this is bigger than you believe it to be. Importantly, less well-heeled money followed too. A GoFundMe campaign clocked over $4 million. But it wasn't just money. This was a moment where Hollywood stepped up to make change. I've been pretty well-versed since that it was Clooney's show from the start. Like, Clooney did most of this. An actual TV producer helped produce the event. She was the executive producer of Dancing with the Stars, but that's just something small she's done. But she's a big Hollywood producer, and, and that's who I my liaison was for all this. And she was actually the person that was, you know in charge of the whole events. Now, I don't want to minimize anything the kids did. I mean, they, they've, they've always been the architect of this whole thing, but the power of Hollywood was definitely, you know, the, the backing of Hollywood was there and, and, the, and the people who know how to run big events were, were on board now. The media came on board to support the march too. Okay, so this March on Washington is happening March, March, 24th. March 24th. Tell everyone what is happening exactly. We're gonna march on Washington. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was Ellen DeGeneres, and there were many more like her. Dina Katz, who helped organise the Women's March, volunteered to map out how to actually hold the DC March. The Brady campaign to prevent gun violence and Bloomberg's Every Town for Gun Safety group reached out to engage the existing movement against gun violence. Back in Parkland, David Hogg and others began organising. We're moving into an office space. This is definitely not going to be our last. We're probably going to need a bigger one than this. Almost everyone using the office was under 18. These students gave the movement its power. But, as Rebecca Hogg became aware, there was also a growing divide between students and adults, including with their would-be allies. They don't really trust people, including their own parents, because we're still the adults. Time magazine wrote at the time that when one of the March for Our Lives parents asked a group of students what they could do to help, the students shouted back, order pizza. The students were fuelled with a righteous indignation that they could make change, not trusting those who had failed before. 
They led the press, social media and planning work in Parklands. There was some professional support, but the students were in charge. As without them, it was nothing. A website was set up where people could register local solidarity rallies for people who couldn't make it to Washington. It was also where allied student groups could download publicity material and commit to attending the Central March in Washington. Across the student community, people brought their whole selves to organising the march. Jamal Lemmy was a highly creative MSD student who started designing T-shirts for the rally. At the time, I was working with um, an organisation called the Real Men Demand Action, and they reached out to me and they saw like I des- like I I designed, and they're like, "Hey, can you? You know, we're going to be at the march. Can you design a, sh- a shirt design with for us?" It was his creative skills that drew Jamal into the movement. The person was going to the march, and he said, "You know, what if your compensation was me uh, flying you out to D.C.?" And this was for March, and I was like, "You know what? <laughs> you know, everything kind of fell together." And I'm on my way to like my first. This was my first time flying on a plane in almost eight years, seven, seven, seven years. So I make, you know, I make it out to the march and one of the, if not the craziest, one of the craziest days of my life. Saturday, March 24. It was big. To see just the enormity of the crowd just slowly, you know, just get larger. I mean, it was incredible. It was the largest youth demonstration in America's history. Organisers estimated that 800,000 people were in Washington alone. And it wasn't just the numbers that made it big. Welcome to the revolution. It is a powerful and peaceful one because it is of, by and for the young people of this country. Many Parkland students spoke, but the event spread beyond and included people affected by gun violence from across the country like Edna Chavez from Los Angeles. Lived in South LA my entire life and have lost many loved ones to gun violence. This is normal. Normal to the point that I've learned to duck from bullets before I learned how to read. Never again, never again. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. NRA, go away. NRA, go away. But equally, behind the stage, it was also bizarre. But at the same time, we were just celebra- surrounded by all these people that we never have a chance to talk to. So we were just kind of going from table to table saying, like, hey, Cher, how you doing? Hey, Steven Spielberg, how you doing? Hey, George Clooney, how you doing? Hi, Jimmy Fallon. That's, and that's how I ended up getting Jimmy Fallon to our graduation last year because we met him there and he spent a lot of time with us that day. And, you know, I mean, just everybody. And, you know, it, it was Kim Kardashian was backstage. So her camera crew was backstage following her. And that's been on the show since where she was honored to meet Emma and meet David and meet Delaney. You know, so it's like it was a weird day. At the event, the students were leaders. They were so popular at the time, they were almost also celebrities. But at the same time, they were also students. Just kids. Um, I had a really great moment where um, I saw Delaney and I saw Ryan and I saw Emma like leading a group of kids that were going to go on the stage from our school and they saw me because I hadn't seen them that morning and they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, let's do a foster picture. You know, and we all took this great picture, just, just the four of us, you know, before it was going and kind of wished them luck and hugged them and everything else. There were some extraordinary speeches. At the podium, 
After pausing for a long, long silence that held the crowd in uncertainty, confusion and expectation, Emma Gonzalez's phone alarm beeped. Since the time that I came out here, it has been six minutes and 20 seconds. The shooter has ceased shooting and will soon abandon his rifle, blend in with the students as they escape and walk free for an hour before arrest. Fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. This was a speech from a student to students in a way that only a survivor of gun violence could tell. Who speaks matters. It was the central lever that lifted this movement to national prominence. And, you know, I wish I could say that this massive mobilisation was all that was needed, that a massive social movement in action, an enormous protest, could change things on its own. But you know, we know, that up against the toughest of adversaries, President Trump, an NRA-funded Congress and Senate, a so-called culture war where guns are part of how us and them are divided, it takes more. While a rally is powerful for galvanising the base, for releasing anger, it's rarely enough. The students were savvy. They knew this. David Hogg said in his speech on the 24th of March, First-time voters show up 18% of the time at midterm elections. Not anymore. Now, who here is going to vote in the 2018 election? We're going to take this to every election, to every state and every city. In this way, the students were savvier than most of the people who march on Washington. Too often, rallies are only mobilisations, framed around specific issues that aim to get lots of people to attend but don't have a plan for the next day. The students did have a plan. Using the power of their voice, they aim to organise fellow students across the country. What do I mean by an organising strategy? It's the opposite of a big protest. Organising is locally rooted, based in relationships, long-term, focused on building sustained power, pressing decision-makers through negotiation. The students had an opportunity for building a deeper, longer-term next step beyond the Washington March. There were 800 groups around the country that took solidarity action on the 24th of March. The question was, could these groups be engaged in a national campaign aimed at registering young people to vote and moving votes in the lead-up to the midterm elections? For traditional community organisers listening to this, I'm sure some of you are a little bit squeamish right now. The March for Our Lives organising plan was not a broad-based organising plan. It maybe was a stretch to even call it an organising plan. Organising usually takes years to cultivate and is built through a powerful listening process of understanding people and cultivating leadership across the diversity of a town or a city. These students weren't doing broad-based organising and they never said they were trying to. In their words, the next step of their plan, which we will cover in our episode on identity, was to replicate the energy of the freedom rides of the 1960s in the digital age. It wasn't new. Their approach resembled the work of the US group Indivisible, which we covered in a previous story, episode 13. It's called a distributed network, or directed network, where a central campaign, often focused on an issue, 
seeks to sustain a long-term movement through local groups and local action around a country. So, are you curious about how it went? The answer is in upcoming episodes. Up next, we step to the side of March for Our Lives with an episode on art and politics, looking at another form of change-making that has grown following the shooting. Then, with a focus on the question of identity, we look at how March for Our Lives spread after Washington through its Freedom Rides campaign. We look at how this whole movement has connected to gun violence more broadly and how gun violence is an issue of race. Finally, we look at the question of burnout and how the students battled the relentless pace of the work that they took on. We explore how they handled and sometimes didn't handle that while also being survivors of a traumatic school shooting. So, as someone else once said, stay with us. This four-part change-making journey has only just begun. Changemaker is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 4, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. This series is written by Kate Wilde, Amanda Tattersall, with Charles Firth as script editor. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.